0: Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 3 Apache Empire. I'm Brandon Seal. Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, a scholar of the Lipan Apaches, Interviewed an old time caporal on a South Texas ranch in 2010. The caporal remembered working with Lipanes back in his younger days in the 1950s, again, another reminder of Lipan non extinction. And he remembered how remarkable they were to watch on horseback. When they rode, he said, quote, Parece que andaban flotando, end quote. They seemed to just be floating. They even walked different. Most cowhands, the old caporal said, walked kind of bone-legged, and dragged their heels. But Lipanes, quote, walk on their tiptoes almost, end quote. quote. ni ruido hacen los cabrones. They don't even make a sound, end quote. And even when they sat, they sat almost coiled like rattlesnakes, like cascabeles enroscadas, ready to bite. Quote, son cabrones estos indios. Son bien agresivos. Sí, son bien distintos, end quote. They're aggressive, he said. They're just different. Lipanes always had an aura about them. Maybe it's what made them such naturally good horsemen. If you'll recall from the opening of season five of this podcast, they believed that the horse was made for them. I've learned from my wife that the best horsemen and women are possessed of a special combination of self confidence and adaptability, two traits that we've seen in abundance in the proto Lipan Plains Apaches for sure. Old Tejanos would always hire Lipanes when they could to do their horse-breaking. The great South Texas and Northern Coahuila cattleman, Ed Lasseter, creator of the Beefmaster breed, went out of his way to find Lipanes to work on his ranches. And even José Francisco Ruiz, who I hope most of you remember from our previous season, lived amongst the Comanches for eight years, but declared unequivocally that the Lipanes were the superior horsemen. The Plains Apaches must have enjoyed surprising the Spanish with their first mounted raid in 1650. They struck the Spanish again on horseback in 1652, raiding a New Mexico village, vandalizing the church, and riding off with 27 captives. For pretty much the previous 130 years, it had always been the Spanish rampaging around and terrorizing native populations from horseback. And yet within a single generation, the Lipanes had made the horse their own. They didn't just adopt the horse, they modified him in the ways that Plain's steppe people around the world have consistently modified horse warfare to suit their needs. The Spanish, at first at least, fought heavy, armoring their mounts, preferring large animals and deliberate concentrated charges. Plains Apaches realized almost immediately the advantages of fighting light, recognizing that speed and mobility was the great advantage of the horse, particularly on the Great American Plains. The Spanish retaliated to this new-mounted Plains Apache threat with more slave raids, peaking around 1659 and 1660 when the New Mexico governor issued no less than 90 decrees justifying slave-taking expeditions. He supposedly owned no less than 90 slaves himself. The conflict between the now-mounted Plains Apaches and the Spanish slave-takers quickly proved too costly for either side to sustain, however and there was quite an obvious way that they could be of benefit to one another now, without either having to submit. The price of Spanish friendship, of Spanish alliance, the Apaches soon learned, was to become slavers on their behalf. In some ways, the fast-moving, newly-mounted Apaches were even more effective against Native peoples than slower-moving Spanish expeditions ever could be. Plus, it was an incredible thing to not only be able to defeat your native rivals, be they Humano or Catawin or whoever, but to get paid for capturing them and selling them far, far away. A robust slaving economy took off on the Texas plains, and the Plains Apaches were right in the middle of it. Buffalo hides and salt were now secondary commodities. Annual trade fairs in New Mexico were organized for Spanish and Apache traders, though the name that they gave these fairs revealed their true purpose. They called them Rescates, or rescues, the idea being that the Spanish weren't making slaves out of Indians, that would violate royal edicts, but that they were rescuing them from Apache slavery by buying them as slaves themselves. The Spanish Apache slave trade was not, however, an alliance, and the Plains Apaches at least understood this. It was simply an extremely profitable arrangement that brought peace between the two great powers so long as each side could live up to its side of the bargain but the 1660s brought another cycle of drought to the Spanish-controlled pueblos. In 1661, the peoples of the New Mexico pueblos were reduced to eating their seed corn. In 1664, conditions in Taos got so bad that almost the entire population fled to the relatively new Apache trading center at El Cuartelejo in Kansas that we mentioned in the previous episode. By 1667, no crops were even harvested in most of the pueblos. Both the Spanish and native populations of New Mexico were reduced to eating cow hides, toasting them to make them more edible. 450 pueblos starved to death in one town alone. In short, by 1669, the Spanish had become poor trading partners. They could barely feed themselves, much less continue to buy slaves from the Apaches. Of what use was peace with the Spanish if they couldn't afford the Apaches' goods? Of what use were the Spanish? Pueblos made plain to the Apaches their resentment for their Spanish overlords, and together they contrived to do something about it. In 1669, Plains Apache collaborated with the Pueblos in an abortive uprising against Spanish rule in New Mexico. Two Pueblo towns in the north, the ones closest to the Plains Apache power center of El Cuartelejo, rose up. They were quashed, and the rest were discovered before they could revolt. But the next year, 1670, the Plains Apaches rekindled the revolutionary fires, attacking the same pueblo that was already decimated from the loss of 450 of their own to starvation. They killed 11 Spaniards there and carried off 30 more as captives. Then, in 1672, the Apaches attacked again when the corn harvest had once again failed. This time, they liberated six towns entirely from Spanish rule. It was a chink in the Spanish colonial armor and a taste of freedom for the 1,200 Pueblo families living in those six newly liberated towns. Spanish authorities responded with a brutal round of repression. They outlawed Pueblo religious ceremonies entirely, arrested 47 of their medicine men, hanged three, publicly whipped the rest, and condemned them to slavery. In retaliation and in apparent coordination with the Pueblos, Plains Apaches now openly attacked the Spanish military outposts throughout New Mexico. And after each attack, more and more Puebloans followed these Apaches back out onto the plains and up to El Cuartelejo. Other Puebloans stayed behind and fomented revolt from within the Pueblos, demanding specifically the release of their imprisoned medicine men. The Spanish governor realized that he had no choice but to relent. The surviving 44 Puebloan religious leaders were released. Among these 44 Puebloan holy men was a man named Popé. Popé retired to Taos for a few years, again the northernmost of the pueblos, and the one geographically and culturally closest to the Plains Apache stronghold at El Cuartelejo. For the next several years, Popé and the Plains Apaches would plan the most successful native uprising in North American history. Sometime, somewhere, in July of 1680, Pope handed out a series of knotted cords to a trusted group of co conspirators from throughout the pueblos. Each day, as they traveled back to their respective pueblo, the conspirators undid one knot. On August 13, 1680, the last knot on everyone's cord was undone, and the pueblo towns of Spanish New Mexico rose up in spectacular unison. 400 Spaniards were killed in a matter of days, if not hours. Including 21 of the 33 priests in the province, churches in particular were targeted. Bolbe proclaimed, quote, "The God of the Christians is dead. He was made of rotten wood." End quote. The surviving Spanish retreated to Santa Fe, where they held up for a week before finally negotiating to abandon the province for modern-day El Paso. As he staggered south, the defeated Spanish governor blamed the Plains Apache specifically for his defeat. And indeed, the great benefactors of the whole uprising were the Plains Apaches. The Pueblos would struggle over the next decade to reassemble their society after 50 years of Spanish occupation. But the Apaches had all but eliminated the Spanish square from their checkerboard and, in the process, left a radically weakened ally, the Pueblos, in their place. And they had won something else. A thousand or more fine Spanish horses escaped onto the Plains and into Apache arms. Killer of Enemies would have been proud. It was a masterstroke of alliance making, really, and native peoples all over the region took notice. Before the Pueblo Revolt, there had been only the irresistible thrust of Spanish conquest, the ravages of their disease, and the dislocations of their slavers. But now, the Plains Apache offered Native America hope, and they offered them horses. The Plains Apache now controlled the most desirable currency on the continent. They would husband it carefully, but they would share it. With their allies, anyway. To their toolbox of alliance-making through trade and intermarriage, they added the carefully controlled sale of horses. And Apache alliance-making became more effective than ever. The easiest recruits were the natives of the El Paso, Texas region, which now hosted the Spanish remnants of New Mexico. Just two years after their arrival, the Spanish were already reporting Apache-led attacks on them there. But even further south, peoples of Coahuila and Chihuahua began to drift into the plains Apache orbit. One scholar has suggested that the Apache expansion during these years might principally have been Apache absorption of these fragmented peoples. The names of tribes like the Janos and the Jocomes and the Mansos and the Sumas and the Chisos, the Tobosos, and the Julimenes would recede around this time, just as the Mounted Plains Apaches arrive. We'll get later glimpses in the historic period of the Plains Apaches' uncanny ability to infiltrate other native peoples, like the Kiowas, the Tonkawas, and eventually even the Comanches, but their success from this point forward in our story was clearly fueled by the horse. Mounted now for a generation, and reprovisioned by the thousand or more horses that they had come into possession of when the Spanish abandoned New Mexico, the Plains Apaches began to overwhelm their Humano rivals directly to their south. From the High Plains to the Hill Country, from the Big Bend to the lower Rio Grande, mounted Apaches pressed down on the Humanos, threatening their core trade routes to the East Texas caddoan speaking peoples and cutting them off almost entirely from their old Pueblo and Mesoamerican trading partners. The Humanos refused to roll over, however, and 1684 saw the rise of a great alliance-making Humano captain the Humano captain had accepted the Spanish religion and went by his baptismal name of Juan Sabayata. Under increasing Apache pressure, Juan Sabayata invited the Spanish into an even closer alliance against their shared Apache enemy by establishing missions in Humano territory. It was no small thing to accept a Spanish mission. It brought disease, slavers, and a lot of insufferable priests but it also brought immense trade and served as a sort of tripwire against Apache aggression. That is, the Plains Apaches would think twice about attacking a joint Humano spanish settlement because of the coordinated repercussions it might bring, whereas an isolated settlement of horseless Humanos could be overrun almost without noticing. The Spanish and Humanos had tried to establish a mission back in 1629, following the mystical message of the Lady in Blue, but they'd had to scuttle the idea in the face of Apache hostility. Yet the abandonment of New Mexico gave new impetus to Spanish efforts to secure their North American frontier. Immediately after withdrawing from New Mexico in 1680, they established their first missions in the El Paso Juarez area, to be followed in 1684 by the founding of two missions near Presidio, Texas, an old Humano hub, and also, and most boldly of all, on the Conchos River near San Angelo, right on the borderline line. Between Apache and Humano territory. And Juan Sabayata brought another player onto the Texas checkerboard. In 1673, rumors began to spread from the direction of the Mississippi River of the arrival of, quote, other Spaniards, end quote, Spaniards without rosaries. Through their old caddoan speaking trading partners in East Texas, the Humanos now learned in 1685 that these other Spaniards, in French as it turns out, had landed along the Texas Gulf Coast itself. And they carried with them an innovation that might, just might, balance the playing field against Apache horses. Whereas the Spanish strictly forbade the sale of firearms to Native Americans, the French were eager and willing arms traders. The Caddoan-speaking East Texans, as well as their Caddoan-speaking Plains cousins, the Pawnee and the Wichita, were the first to acquire them up on the Kansas Plains, and there were stories of how they had checked the Plains Apache's advance with them. Humano Captain Juan Sabayata shot across Texas to secure his own access. And yet Juan Sabayata's third and final measure may have been his most ambitious. After meeting with the French and realizing that they were not, in fact, other Spaniards, but rivals of them, he shot back across Texas again, something he apparently did at least eight times in the historical record, to make sure that the Spanish knew that their French rivals were on the checkerboard. Nothing could have served as greater impetus for Spanish action in North America than their old-world rivalry with the French. And Juan Sabiata somehow intuited this. Don't worry, though, he told his Spanish friends. I can put in a good word for you with the East Texas Catowan speakers, the Tejas, the Hasenai. They're old friends of mine. In fact, why don't you set up a mission with them in East Texas as well? They'd love it. The first two Spanish missions established in East Texas in 1690 spoke to the success of Humano Juan Sabayata's alliance-making. And indeed, he ultimately drew thousands of people to him, to his great capital on the San Sabah River in the hill country, which he always kept at a slight remove from the Spanish. For several years, he had outmaneuvered the Plains Apache, he'd helped the Spanish establish a footprint in Texas, and he'd laid the foundation for an anyone but the Apache's Spanish diplomatic bias that would never really go away. But by 1693, Juan Sabayata disappeared from the colonial record. And around this time, perhaps not coincidentally, humano identity increasingly merges into Apache identity. Juan Sabayata shows that Apaches weren't the only alliance makers in native Texas. What he also shows, however, is that the plains Apaches were just better at it than everyone else, especially after they acquired the horse. It all just enhanced their aura, and to other native tribes, these Proto-Lipan Plains Apaches became a shining beacon of anti-colonial resistance. In the words of one scholar, quote, The success of the Lipan Apaches after their acquisition of the horse grew other chattered groups toward them and their way of life, end quote. The proof of this mass migration into Apache, Texas, was the linguistic diversity documented there by the first Spanish entradas in the 1680s. The sheer number of languages in native Texas was way out of proportion to the size and carrying capacity of the region, and only makes sense if South Texas had become a common destination for native peoples fleeing Spanish disease, missionaries, and slavers from all over. And indeed, it was in South Texas where the Apache whirlwind would sweep up these diverse peoples into their vortex. But here's the punchline I've been keeping from you this massive empire, or sphere of influence at least, ranging from Kansas to Coahuila, from the Rockies to the Rio Grande to modern-day I-35, was being sustained by a shockingly small number of Plains Apaches. Plains Apaches may have numbered as few as 5,000 men, women, and children in 1680. As compared to 35,000 or so Catawan Hasanai in East Texas, 20,000 or so scattered humanos and or Coahuiltecans to their south, and similar numbers or more of Catawan Wichitas in Oklahoma. This was the power of the Apache aura, to be sure, but it was also the power of the horse. In 1692, however, the Spanish recaptured the New Mexican pueblos. It was not a peaceful affair, with many pueblos captured and enslaved, and some fleeing to live with the Apaches out on the plains. But there's reason to believe that the Apaches may have let the Spanish reconquest happen. Increasingly, The Apaches missed the Spanish as trading partners in the Pueblos, especially once their Catawans-speaking rivals to the east started arming themselves with French guns. Trade with Europeans was a terrible drug. Once you were hooked, you couldn't live without it, especially if your rivals got access to it and you didn't. And the whole point, after all, of controlling the old Humano trade routes had been to profit from this trade with the now Spanish-controlled markets in Mesoamerica and New Mexico. Increasingly, the Plains Apaches realized they needed the Spanish. It didn't mean that they would let them return for free, however. Apache captains in New Mexico and in and around El Paso extracted lucrative concessions. As a condition of allowing the Spanish to return, the Apaches would receive lavish annual gifts, access to the trade of the pueblos, and even gold and silver batons for the Plains Apache captains. These annual gifts, it seems, were understood to be recurring. Rent, we would call them, if we weren't Spanish bureaucrats trying to cover up the fact that they were now having to pay tribute to the native tribes they pretended to govern. As further proof of the real nature of this arrangement, under the terms of their agreements with the Apaches, the Spanish were only allowed to enter Apache lands on designated roads. The irony of these caminos reales, as they show up in our textbooks, is that they were less proof of the extent of Spanish power, but rather evidence of the very limited presence that the Spanish had in these lands that we ought to more properly think of during this period as constituting an Apache empire. Because it was, indeed, an empire, the scale of which often gets lost in English-language histories because at least half of it extended deep into modern-day Mexico. Complemented by their related Mescalero, Chiricahua, Navajo, and other Apache nations to the west, Pacheria, in this sense, ran from the Pacific to the Atlantic. To the great frustration of Spanish administrators. It's probably not a coincidence that this is the period that you start to hear a common theme when describing the Apaches. Apaches, according to European writers, are untrustworthy. Specifically, they demonstrate an irrepressible tendency to steal. Their lack of trustworthiness and ignorance of all laws that govern the waging of war have no other source than the natural propensity of the Apaches to steal and to inflict damage on their enemies, End quote. Interestingly, it's a charge that's almost exclusively leveled by settlers against Apaches within the recognized borders of Apacheria, the Apache Empire. But then again, can you really steal from a trespasser, which is presumably what they saw the Spanish to be? It's also a little hard to square this reputation for Apache thievery with the other consistent description of them, a description that continues well into the Anglo period. The Plains Apaches were rich, and they had gotten rich from trade. At a time when a horse could fetch 50 or 100 or 300 pesos in New Spain or New England, for that matter, each individual Plains Apache owned dozens of them. Not to mention their finely worked hides, their control of the best flint quarries and salt mines, and their other weapons and personal effects. By the end of the 17th century, the Plains Apaches had brought to a screeching halt the Spanish imperial machine that had conquered the Aztecs, the Incans, and many, many others. And yet it was precisely on the borderline of the Spanish and Apache worlds that a new settlement would arise, a mixed society of the Spanish and native traditions which would come to define the identity of each. I'm talking about San Antonio, and I'm talking about the province of Texas. On the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margo Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina González Dávila, Nancy McGown Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maestas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Madur. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com.